Welcome back to Business Buzz. Harold Littlejohn, CPA. I'll be your host for the next hour. Lots of good information coming your way. I have finally got what I really have been looking for, a real good breakdown of the president's new tax proposal that the GOP has sort of put together in the House. Remember, anything they do on tax-wise, which we've talked about before here, it's a long, probably a pretty long ways off, and the way they're doing it is not going to end up being the way that it's going to end up being in the law. Things are going to change. People are going to be arguing this, that, and the other. But it's a pretty good idea to just kind of see what it is they have proposed so that you can at least make sense of what they're thinking of and whether it ends up being that exact thing or not. There, there is a chance that it could be something similar, which you know might help you down the road. Now, part of this plan does involve businesses being taxed differently than individual wage earners. So that part of it is a little bit strange. But as we'll see, I'm going to explain a lot of the highlights today of this new tax proposal. It's sort of a mix of things, and it's a bit of a it's a bit of a compromise. So it's a little strange the way they're wording it. And I won't get too complicated, but I do think it's worth looking at. And I'm very interested, of course, as since my business is mostly helping people with income taxes, uh, CPAs do a lot of different kinds of work. Some do a lot more of the other kind of CPA work than I do. They do like audits of nonprofits, governmental units, school districts. Some CPAs do a lot of that. I choose not to do that type of work. I choose mainly to do the help for people with tax issues, uh, tax preparation, tax planning, uh, solving tax problems. That's just what I've been doing for the last uh, 37 years since I graduated from Chico State right here in Chico with my accounting degree. So that's a little bit more about me. But the main thing is, is that the this whole tax idea is supposed to be helping the American economy to improve. So that's why a lot of these things are very interesting. And I wanted to share them with you. I've also got an article I want to share with you. Uh, that's going to sort of talk about just the economy in general. It's going to talk about the labor force, the unemployment rate. You'll hear things on the news about the unemployment rate a little later. We're going to get to some of that. But right now, what I really want to share with you is, before we get into discussing what's going on with this new tax bill, which should pretty much affect everyone who pays taxes, I did a quick analysis today of what here's my example what would this new tax bill do to a couple who is earning $111,000 of wages now that may be a bit over the national average of earnings but here in northern california it's not that uncommon for uh two people to combine to make 100 to 110,000 sometimes more sometimes less the reason I picked 110000 is the new low tax bracket in the bill for the individual rates begins at 12%. So when I saw that, I thought, well, that's fine. The current law begins at 10%. So where does the 12 save money? And as I dug in a little bit to the mechanics of this new tax proposal, I realized the good news 12 per, the 12% bracket goes all the way up to taxable income of $90,000, which is the reason why I picked this couple and I plugged them into my program as earning $111,000 of wages. Here's the way this broke down with the new law versus the old law for this couple that earns $111,000 in wages. And to be honest, Uh, That would probably work out to be an average amount among people that I see because a lot of people who earn a lot less than that don't need to pay a professional to do their taxes. They can do them online. But I would say in my practice and just the general people that I work with, this 111 is maybe a little bit over the average, but it's not astronomically high. 
and it's not super low. Here's what I found when I plugged in this income to the new proposed tax rates. Under the old law, this couple using the standard deduction, which means they don't have to be paying a lot of home mortgage interest, they don't have to be donating a lot to charity, they're just going to use the standard deduction, they currently are paying federal tax per year on their $111,000 of $14,100. Now what is very interesting is if the new tax law was the law, that $111,000 earning couple, their total tax liability would drop from 14,001 to under $9,900. They would have a lower federal income tax bill by this new law of $4,200, actually a little more than $4,200, which I found I found kind of reassuring because I was concerned that when they came out with the details of this tax proposal, that it really wasn't going to help this type of couple. And in my opinion, this is the middle-income couple that needs the most help these days. And I was pretty impressed with the fact that that couple never gets over the 12% tax bracket based on the new higher standard deduction. And they have a new way of doing exemptions. It's kind of complicated. I'm not going to confuse you with a bunch of strange numbers. But I can tell you right now that if you're an average couple making around 100000 of wages, you would do well in this new tax plan. Now, whether we're going to talk about this new tax plan a little bit, some of the news about it or some of the commentary about it insinuates that wealthy people are getting off the hook. I do believe that their taxes will go down also, but these rates are not a lot lower for the for the wealthy. So the new rates go from 12%, like we talked about, up to 39.6%, which is the current high rate also, but the interesting part is that if you do have a real wealthy guy, and I always think of, well, Trump's a wealthy guy, so he'll be subject to this, you do not get the advantage of the 12% rate. So that means that your first 90, if you make like a couple million dollars of income, your first 90,000 will not be taxed at the 12%. They will pick that up and tax it at the 25%. So it uh, sounds like you're never going to get the 12% rate if you're a high income earner. So in my opinion, this plan it isn't a complete boon it is a complete giveaway to the wealthy. It does sound like and some of these things I can't confirm just from the limited amount that I've been able to research what they've said. I believe that they're going to eliminate this extra tax that came in in 2013. It was related to the Affordable Care Act. And it's an extra about 3.8% of tax on wealthy people's investment income and earned income. And that essentially puts the federal rate up to about 42% under the current law. So right now, this 39% is very close to that. I'm not convinced that this is a complete giveaway to the rich people. And as we go through it a little bit, I'll try to explain that, but... So I just thought it was very interesting that the 111,000 earning couple is going to save $4,200. Well, that could come in handy when you look at what things cost these days. In the subject of what things cost these days, I just received my invoice for my self-employed two-person, my wife and I, Affordable Care Act, affordable premium that I have to pay every month just to be legal and to not get fined for not participating in the healthcare system. And I actually have a professional that I get insurance help with because these things are absolutely beyond me. They're very complicated. I recommend anyone that's especially self-employed and you're dealing with looking for your premiums on healthcare policies, 
you should talk to a healthcare professional that can help you because there's lots of choices, there's lots of different plans that qualify, and your premiums will fluctuate a lot depending on which plan you cost, which plan you choose. To be honest, I luckily we don't have any major health issues, so I'm not spending tons of money on medical all the time. I opt for the lowest premium plan. If something happens, I know I've got a high deductible. I know that I'll have to pay a big chunk toward the deductible if I have to go to the hospital for something or other. But here's my problem with going any other way. For two people who hardly use medical things, hardly use medicine, drugs, doctor visits, I am now paying just under $1,800 per month. That is my Affordable Care Act premium. And that compares to about four years ago before this all came into play. Of course, I was also insured. At the time, my son was only 19 or 20, so he was still part of my plan. Uh, Just a few years ago, for three people, uh, myself, my wife, and my son, I was paying around 900 a month. And of course, you know, seven, eight years ago, I thought that's pretty darn expensive too. Well, now I'm paying twice that for two people instead of three. And I know I've got a lot higher deductible now. So anybody who touts this whole Affordable Care Act, I won't call it Obamacare, but that's what I'm talking about. If that's his legacy, then I feel sorry for him in the in the future history books because... It's an to me it's a complete disaster. Now there are people who used to be uninsured and now they have to be insured and they are covered that are probably getting a lot of benefit from this. So I don't want to turn those people off or think that I'm cold-hearted and callous about it, but I don't believe it's fair for two people to have to pay $1800 a month to have a high deductible health plan. That's just my opinion. And I just don't, you know, that, that's my feeling, and when it hits home to me when I get this new bill, I had to actually increase my deductible, and at the same time, my premium went up about 20%, and that's the lowest I can get. So I don't even want to think about what it's going to be another year from now. If it goes up another 20%, I'm going to be up to 2100 a month just to you know, keep myself legal from the Affordable Care Act penalties. So I won't get into much more of that. Now, as far as the new tax bill and how it works, like I said, that basic couple got a tax savings. They have a lower tax rate, and they have a higher standard deduction. In the old law, they had a standard deduction plus exemptions that came to $20,700. The new law gives them a standard deduction only worth $24,000, but instead of exemptions, it gives them a credit of $300 per person. So that's what led to that tax going all the way down to $9,900 from 14,001. So I was kind of impressed with the fact that a lot of my clients, if they were to pass this, which like I say, it it's going to be passed probably at some point, maybe in a year or two, but it's not going to look like the way they're proposing it now. Now, some of the other features of this new tax proposal is the child tax credit is now $1,600 per child instead of $1,000, and that's a direct credit. That's like money in your pocket. So it looks like a family with three children that are under 17 would have a $4,800 tax relief off of their tax liability. So this couple that I'm looking at in my little example that I plugged in, if they had three children, their uh, regular tax under the old law would have been, and I'm kind of doing some math in my head right now, probably about $11,000 with the three children, uh, maybe $8,000. But with this law, the tax would be $5,000. So the way I'm calculating this, even a family with two parents and three children, they would still save 
probably the family with three children that's already paying fairly low tax would still save $3,000 a year. Well, $3,000 a year buys a lot of pampers, I would say. So that's a pretty good deal for a family with three children. So I think that's another, that's another good feature of this thing so far. So as soon as the break comes over, we're going to um, talk a little bit more about the new tax law. I'm going to talk about the labor situation and the unemployment rate, and we're going to have all kinds of fun with a bunch of statistics. So stay tuned to Business Buzz. We'll be right back. With home mortgage rates still near historic lows, now is a great time to buy or refinance. Michael Humes is your one-stop mortgage lender. Michael Humes and his knowledgeable staff are well-versed in a wide variety of loan types, including FHA, Fannie Mae, USDA, HomePath, and HARP. For a free evaluation of your mortgage needs, call him, 530-624-7942. That's 530-624-7942. Be sure to listen to Michael's Mortgage Market Update every Wednesday at 2.30 on Your Home Today. This is Michael Humes, Mortgage Specialist at Network Mortgage, located at 155 East 3rd Avenue. NMLS License 230273, BRE License 01250862, employed by Network Mortgage, BRE License 01840139, NMLS License 358237, Equal Housing Opportunity. Hey, this is Rich with DJ Carports and Garages. We've been serving the Butte County area since 2000 with carports, sheds, and other type of metal buildings. We have warranties of 25 years on the galvanized steel frame and 40 years on the powder-coated sheeting. Give me a holler if you'd like me to look at the spot that you're considering, and I will share with you the options that are available. My number is 530-877-1222. That's 877-1222. Thanks, and you have a great day. Welcome back to Business Buzz. Harold Littlejohn, CPA here. I'm breaking down some of the things in this tax bill, and there's some there's a few negatives. I'm going to go over a few negatives right now because so far I've sort of said, hey, it sounds pretty good, but there's some negatives that are going to affect you, and if they are affecting you, then this is going to offset some of that tax savings. So hopefully the bad things that are a bit negative here will not offset your savings on the good part to where you know even if you have some negatives kicking in, Uh, maybe you'll end up breaking even and it won't be a a real bad thing with the negatives. So here's some of the negatives that I've got to tell you about. Itemized deduction. So remember, we talked about standard deduction going up to 24,000. Now there's a lot of people who itemize deductions over the 12,006. That's the current standard deduction for married. I'm just using married couples because it's just simpler to talk about one group this way. If you itemize deductions somewhere between twelve six and twenty four thousand, then you're really not losing a lot because your new standard deduction is twenty four. So in that respect, the itemized deduction section isn't hurting you that bad if you right now have fourteen or fifteen thousand because you're in between the standard deduction currently and the one in the future. Here's what they're changing. The write-off under itemized deductions for state and local and sales tax would be eliminated. So that's one where the that's where we're going to see arguments in the House and the Senate when they get down to trying to actually write this bill and make it palatable to everybody. This is where the flack is going to come from the high-income tax states. California is pretty high. New York, New Jersey, New York is super high. Not only does New York have a high state income tax. If you work in New York City and Yonkers and uh, that metropolitan area, you actually pay an extra city income tax also. So back there is a real high uh, state income tax. Right now, that's a deduction on itemized deductions. This new law is going to write that, and you're not going to be able to write that off. So that's going to hurt people in the high tax uh, states. The other thing is property taxes, which is now currently an itemized deduction. That's the tax you pay on your home real estate tax, 
boats, airplanes, cars, a DMV, that's property tax. That is still going to be allowed, but it's going to be capped at $10,000. Now, that $10,000 is going to cover a lot of people's property, especially in the Butte County area, because property taxes are generally, they work out to be about 12% of the value of your home. Uh, I'm sorry, 1.2%, uh, my, my mistake on the decimal point. So if your home is valued at $300,000 on the property tax rolls, you're probably paying $3,500 or $3,600 a year in property tax. So the average family is not going to be hurt by this cap on property taxes at $10,000 of deduction. So I don't think that's going to be a bad thing, even if it passed that way. But like I say, now there's some states with higher property tax rates. For instance, Texas doesn't have a state income tax, but they do have high property taxes. So you move to Texas and you say, hey, my house that I would normally have to pay 300 for in California is only going to cost me 150 in Texas. Well, that's fine, but you're also probably going to pay another two or 300 a month in property tax to offset the savings in your mortgage. So property taxes are kind of funny, but generally... I'm going to say that most people of middle income are not going to be hurt by the cap of $10,000 for the property tax deduction. Now, here's the one that's going to affect some people in our area, but a lot of people in California overall, and that is the mortgage interest deduction is changing under this proposal. Currently, you can deduct the interest on debt of up to $1.1 million for your house. Now, in Chico, that probably doesn't apply that often. But if you're in Menlo Park and you just bought a house and it was $1.3 million and you put $200,000 down, you're deducting the interest on your mortgage in full. And that's a huge tax saver. And that plays into your calculation of whether you can afford to buy this house and whether you can afford to make that mortgage payment. The new law, as proposed, would cap that at the debt on $500,000, and there would be no extra for second homes and uh, home equity loans. So here we go. If you are a realtor in Menlo Park, and the cheapest home anybody of your clients can find is $800,000, now if they take out a mortgage of $700,000 to buy that house— they are not going to be able to deduct the interest in full. They'll have to prorate five-sevenths, which is the 500000 of debt allowed over the 700000 of the mortgage amount. And so now they're already cutting into what they can deduct. So that's going to make the home less affordable because the entire amount of the interest is not deductible. So like I say, this is another feature that's probably not going to affect a lot of the average people because the average earner who buys a house for three or four hundred thousand is not going to be having a problem with this limit of the five hundred thousand on the debt. So, in my opinion, that one is not going to hurt the average uh, couple. And I'm sort of gearing this whole show towards the average couple because you got to pick somebody to talk about. Um, you know, you could spend twenty minutes on every one of these paragraphs if you wanted to discuss all five of the different tax filing statuses, but we're not going to do that here. Now, remember, this is also something that you can call me about at my office, and we can meet. I offer a free initial consultation, and if you're concerned about your tax planning, your tax situation, you got things coming up, you're, you're buying a home, you can call me. That's what I'm here for. I can help you out with any of these kind of questions on, a, on an individual basis. Uh, I'm going over the negatives here. I'm going to skip over a positive look at what we'll come back to. There is a thing right now where childcare costs can be worked out through your employer and you can deduct $5,000 of your daycare costs for your child uh, through your W-2. Uh, for people that doesn't affect, uh, that's not a big deal, that is going to be gotten rid of if this plan goes through. So that's a negative. Here's a crazy one, and I didn't realize this till I finally read all the details. If anybody's familiar with the home sale income exclusion. It's the biggest tax saver most people ever use, and it's a great one. The Right now in the new law, and I'm sorry, in the current law for married couples, if you've lived in your home and owned it for the two of the previous five years, which isn't that long of a test, 
you get to exclude from income up to $500,000 of gain from your home sale if you sell it. So that means all people that are living in a home that's now worth $700,000 that they paid $200,000 for 20 or 30 years ago, they can sell that for seven hundred dollars and pay zero tax on the gain. Well, that is actually staying with this new proposal, but the exclusion phases out dollar for dollar when adjusted gross income is over 500000 Well, now here's what that means. If you have a wealthy couple whose income is a million, they do not get the home sale exclusion anymore. That's, that's going to hurt some people. Remember, there's people down in the Bay Area that have huge gains on homes, and this, this 500000 is a big deal to them. But if their income's too high, they're not going to get it. So I would say this is another case where the average basic couple that has middle income earnings is not going to be affected, but people with high income is going to be affected if this were to become law. And remember, through this whole discussion, this is just proposed law. It's not law, and it's not going to come out the way they're proposing it but it is a good idea to learn about what's happening in the guidelines. So that is another of the negatives. And now I'm going to go back to some of the more positives. One of the positives is the charitable contributions are staying. So that is not going to go away. So that that's a positive. Some of the things that are going away is moving expenses, casualty losses. In other words, if a earthquake destroys your home and you don't have insurance to cover it, or you only have insurance to cover half of it or something, you get a large deduction for what's called a personal casualty loss. Those sound like they're going to go away, and that's that's a little bit of a surprise to me, but it is. They're also going to make, it looks like alimony is not going to be a deduction anymore for the payer but it's also not going to be taxable to the recipient. So that's a plus and a minus. So we're going to talk about the unemployment rate in a little bit and just a couple more things about the new tax law. And I want to make you aware of some other things you need to know. We'll be right back with Business Buzz after another quick break. KKXX is excited to present Seeds of Truth with Joe Holcraft each weekday evening. Joe has hosted the Catholic Hour every weekend for the last eight years. And Seeds of Truth promises the same Catholic understanding of sacred scripture, contemporary faith-based topics, and the latest news from around the world. If you have questions about faith, join Joe and the Seeds of Truth right here on KKXX each evening, Monday through Friday. It's similar if you ignore the differences. This is Ken Ham, and we produce the family-friendly Answers Bible Curriculum. You've probably heard that chimps and humans share 98% of their DNA, but where'd this number come from? Well, DNA matching is complicated. To simplify it, researchers ignored the large mismatch sections totaling 1.3 billion DNA letters. The remaining 2.4 billion letters were 98% similar. So researchers left out huge parts of both human and chip DNA in the comparison. Yet this number is supposed proof that we're related. Our DNA isn't 98% similar to chimps. Yet we share some similarities in our DNA with apes, and that's no surprise. That's because we're made of similar things like muscles, bones, and hair. Learn about our full-size Noah's Ark-themed attraction, Ark Encounter, when you go to our website at AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program again at AnswersRadio.com. Today, my new dad threw a barbecue. I burnt everything. Ah! And then we played catch. I broke Mr. Lewis's window. And then, somehow, my hand. My hand! And then my dad even let me drive his car. The hospital's on the right! It was a rough day. It was a great day. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. Thousands of kids in foster care will take you just as you are. For more information on how you can adopt, visit AdoptUSKids.org. A public service announcement from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, AdoptUSKids, and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Business Buzz. Harold Littlejohn, CPA here. 
I'm going to quickly go over a couple more items about the new tax proposal. And like I say, don't forget, this is not law yet, so don't count on it. But just be prepared in case it does come through in some form like this. Here's a really interesting thing that I like as a, well, actually, as a preparer, this is a double-edged sword for me. The alternative minimum tax would be repealed. Well, here's the thing. In one respect, I don't like it because people can get surprised and it kind of throws away current deductions. But as a tax preparer, in a kind of a left backhanded sort of way, it's a good thing because it's so complicated that people need help figuring it out. So, I mean, I don't want to sound self-centered on that one, but uh, it is a major thing that that is going to be repealed because that one catches a lot of wealthy people with extra tax. So that one is one that will help the wealthy and it won't have much effect on the basic uh, middle income types. So that one's sort of a wealthy deal. The other thing is the estate tax, and that's not income tax. That's the tax you pay when you die if you die with too much net worth. Here's my complaint about the estate tax and the whole debate about it. This is going to get rid of the estate tax in a phase-out that'll be, at first it'll double to where you can die with $10 million and not pay it. And then full repeal is scheduled for the year 2024. So it's about a seven-year phase in. Here's my problem with the estate tax. The only people who pay it are people who got caught not planning correctly. Someone didn't realize they needed to set up the proper structure or give away things while they're alive. Most people never pay this because if you have more than $5 million right now, which is the current exemption... You have made a plan with your attorney to somehow figure that out. And you've got life insurance to pay for the estate tax. You've given away as much money per year as you can. What I I don't like about the estate tax is someone like Trump or Bill Gates or Warren Buffett, they set up these family foundations. Like when you hear about the Ford Foundation and the Guggenheim Foundation and all this stuff, all that is is... These are things that have been set up to avoid estate tax. And so the $500 million or the, I'm sorry, maybe the $50 billion of someone like Bill Gates, it's already going to some charitable trust that'll employ his relatives for the next hundred years. And there will be no estate tax paid because one of the big exemptions to avoid the estate tax is anything you leave to charity does not count towards that tax. So my big bones about this estate tax repeal is, so what? The real rich guys never pay it. Most rich people don't pay it because they have complicated ways to sort of avoid it. For instance, let's say right now you have a $10 million estate. If you die tomorrow, you will owe $2 million of estate tax because over the first $5 million, it's a 40% rate. I'm just throwing some numbers out. Well, for a probably three or $400,000, you can buy a life insurance policy when you're age 50-something that will pay off the $2 million when you die. So that and that tax-free life insurance, you know, I'm just saying, people with the wherewithal to figure this out don't pay much estate tax, never have. And uh, when you die and you're married, the spouse, even if it's $100 million, your spouse receives your half of the estate with zero estate tax. So for the second spouse passing away, you got a plan. But all I'm saying is very few people pay it. The only ones who do pay it are the ones who weren't savvy enough to figure out how to work it out prior. And of course, that's another thing you can call me about for a free consultation uh, if you're concerned about that. And uh, I am happy for you if you're concerned about it because that means you're worth more than five million bucks. And that's a, that's a pretty good accomplishment. So uh, pats on the back for you on that. Um, but I'd love to see your family save anything they can uh, after you pass away. So that's why it's good to plan for the estate tax. Now, uh, one other uh, positive on here, I got to find it. It is for businesses, there's going to be a 25% top rate on passive business activities then there'll be a mix of a top rate for active business activities. So if you're fortunate enough to have bought a 
partnership income in an apartment house that now makes you, you know, $50,000 a year of net rents, that is passive income and that's going to be a top rate of 25%. So in the current law, the top rate of 39 and like I said, even 42% does not apply if this new law passes and you're down to 25 on that sort of income. So these are the kind of tax planning items that if and when this bill ends up passing, you can start planning your future and your retirement money to hopefully avoid taxes in the future with these huge breaks. So there's all kinds of weird things in this new law, and I just wanted to make sure you're well-informed. As a listener to Business Buzz, that's what I expect to do for you is to keep you well-informed. So as far as the new tax law, what I just covered is really a big chunk of what you need to know and like I say, it could be a year until they pass something or more. And when they do pass it, it's going to be look a lot different than what we just talked about. But some of the things we just talked about will be in it. Some will be in it, but adjusted. Uh, it's going to be, you know, something's going to happen, but it's probably going to be a mix of the old law and the new law that they're proposing. So I want you to be clear on that. Now, I promised you that I would educate you about the unemployment rate, the employment, the labor market, and that whole scene. And I've got a great article I want to share some information with you on. And it is from my favorite writer, who is named Egon Von Greyers. If you've been listening to my show, you've heard some things from Egon for quite a while. He's a Swiss guy. And I'm going to read from a, the latest article that he wrote on November 5th, which is uh, just recently. So I'm just going to read it, and it's called Propaganda and the Ugly Truth. And this is for all of you who ever believe that what you read from the government statistics is correct. The facts just don't add up. The U.S. government has managed to publish a number of contradicting employment figures that make no sense whatsoever. For example, U.S. consumer sentiment is the highest in 13 years. At the same time, U.S. October Household Employment Survey dropped 484,000 and the labor force shrank by 765,000. But due to manipulation of the figures, October payrolls increased by 261,000 and the unemployment rate declined to 4.0% from 4.2%. The labor participation rate is down to the 1977 level with only 62% of the population employed or looking for work. How can anyone believe any of these figures that tell us payroll increased and unemployment declined at the same time as employment and labor force went down substantially? It must all be pure fantasy. The labor participation rate is down from 67% in 1999. The problem with U.S. labor statistics is that they conveniently disregard the 95.4 million people, a record level, who are able to work but are not working. The total U.S. labor force, which is capable of working, is 256 million. Of those, 161 million are actually working or actively looking for a job. This means that the 95.4 million, many of which have given up looking for a job, represent 36% of all those capable of working. So with fewer people working and with average workers' real pay having declined since 1975, it is hard to accept that people in the U.S. are feeling so optimistic. So that's what I wanted to talk about. So that portion of this article mentions the fact that they say unemployment is 4%, but that's not what I see because I work all day on Mangrove Avenue in Chico. And in the old days, I would see one or two people that were obviously living under a bridge somewhere uh, walking by my office. Maybe once a month, I'd see someone like that. Uh, these days, it's, it's numbers of them every day. And there's definitely a lot of people that are not in the workplace. And not that these are all people who are trying to work, but the whole point is is that if you are ignoring 90-something million people that have given up looking for work, how can you not call them unemployed? 
So in reality, when you look at those numbers, you're, we're probably looking at a true unemployment rate of 20 to 30%, which is what they used to quote for the Great Depression of the 1930s, which was, I believe they quoted 25%. So I can guarantee that the real unemployment rate is way more. Now, I will grant you this. Of the 95 million that are not being counted, I'm sure a lot of them are like working under the table, working somewhere for cash, uh, not being in part of the, in the system. That reminded me of a saying that I heard when they talk about the Great Depression and then they say we might be in a recession, but they never mention depression. The old definition is a recession is when your neighbor loses his job. A depression is when you lose yours. So that's just sort of something that I remember. Now, now this article also goes on to talk about uh, retailing and the whole world of our economy in that respect. So here's his take on that. He says, my visit to the U.S. He's, uh, like I say, he's from Switzerland. Having recently visited the U.S., it is difficult to understand that the U.S. consumer is the most confident in 13 years. I visited a few shopping malls, including a major mall in Boca Raton, Florida, with all the major department store chains plus all the specialty chains. Boca is an affluent area, but virtually all stores were dead with lots of staff who had nothing to do. There was only one store that was packed, which was Apple. The Microsoft store was also totally empty. Now here's the real problem that we have. U.S. retail floor space per person. In the United States, the floor space per person is 23 feet. And we're going to get right back to this retail floor space item in a few minutes. So hang on. We'll be back from the break. Stay tuned to Business Buzz. Be right back. Hi, this is James McDonald, and you know, I didn't just stumble into Christian radio. Actually, I was personally impacted and had my life changed by Christian radio as a young man. And I bet the same has happened for you. Take a moment to contact your station right now. Let them know how their ministry has impacted your life. And might I suggest a gift, a financial contribution to help them continue and their passionate commitment to get God's word to you. I spend a lot of time in the backyard, and I'm the center of attention at summer barbecues. In 96, I made some of the tastiest s'mores. And in 09, it was me, your backyard fire pit, that accidentally started a wildfire when a summer breeze carried one of my embers into some dry brush. Spark a change, not a wildfire. Visit SmokeyBear.com. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. Only you can prevent wildfires. Keyboard Cat, Hamilton the Pug, and Toast Meets World. These are some of the Internet's most beloved pets. And they all have one thing in common. Their stories started in a shelter. Start your story. Adopt a dog or cat today. Visit theshelterpetproject.org to find a pet near you. Training that pet to play the keyboard, that's optional. Start a story. Adopt a shelter or rescue pet today. Brought to you by Maddie's Fund, the Humane Society of the United States, and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Business Buzz. Harold Littlejohn, CPA here, filling you in on some interesting statistics. You know, it was really depressing. Last time I went to the Chico Mall area there and the Outback, which I still kind of like. They have great happy hours, by the way. They have great food for very low prices during happy hour. That's what I meant. Here's part of this article. Like I say, his name's Egon Von Greyers, V-O-N space G-R-E-Y-E-R-Z. You can look him up. These are great commentaries. U.S. retail floor space per person in 2015 was 23.6 square feet per person. Australia was only 11.1 and uh, England was 4.6. So he goes on to say, the state of U.S. retailing is clearly dire with five times as much retail space per person as in the U.K., a country which is also overshopped. 
With 6,700 planned closures so far in 2017, this industry is clearly hemorrhaging. That's what I meant to say when I was near the outback because our Sears is closed. And I've, I've been going to Sears since I was a little kid down in the Bay Area. Uh, Sears was a major part of all of our, a lot of family purchases, Kenmore refrigerators, sewing machines, washer dryers. Uh, the Sears is closed in Chico. It's pretty depressing. So he goes on to say, retail is being hit by the decline in real disposable income and also the development of online sales. Although the Amazon valuation has looked ridiculous for many years, maybe it is justified as this company eventually will have a total monopoly in many areas of retail with the exception of some specialty chains such as non-branded fashion. But the problem is not just retailing. The U.S. trade deficit is continuing to balloon and is now at an annualized $750 billion, which is the worst since 2007. Real construction spending is also declining and is the worst since 2011. Don't forget, uh, I'm interjecting here, the trade deficit is a key figure. The trade deficit is what we bring in in imports from out other countries versus what we send out in exports. That, I believe, has been ballooning ever since, I think, 1970, maybe even the 60s. So we're talking about every month, $60 billion going out in exports where the money's going elsewhere and it's not coming back to us. So he goes on to say, and he's talking about the fact that it says that Americans are are positive about the economy. He calls it Alice in Wonderland. Either Americans are misled by the continuous bubble highs in stock markets or by the government propaganda, which the media, without analysis, just publishes as facts, even though virtually all of it is Alice in Wonderland fantasy. Or maybe the bullish consumer sentiment figures are just as fake as most of the figures produced by government. How else can the official unemployment figures be 4% when according to shadow stats, it is 22%. And by the way, if you go to shadowstats.com, I think it is, this, uh, this economist measures all of our current numbers using older formulas, and he comes up with 22% unemployment versus 4%. So continuing with this article, as the British Prime Minister Disraeli stated, quote, there are lies, damn lies, and statistics. End quote. But markets love these lies since they continue to drive valuations exponentially higher, whether it is the FANG stocks or cryptocurrencies. And by the way, if you ever hear the word FANG stocks, that means Facebook, Apple, Netflix, and Google, which have changed the names, but that's what they're talking about. Okay, here we go. Here's what I've been harping on. I'm talking about the deficit. The U.S. working population of 154 million has the responsibility for the U.S. total debt which currently is $70 trillion. That excludes unfunded liabilities of anywhere from $120 trillion to $200 trillion, which also must be funded. But if we just take the $70 trillion debt, that amounts to, are you ready for this math, folks? $454,000 of debt for each working person. Adding the unfunded liabilities, which is like future Medicare, future Social Security, and all that, we are looking at anywhere between 1.2 and 1.7 million dollars of debt per working US citizen. Since the average US person is one wage check from bankruptcy, they are hardly in a position to pay anywhere from 454,000 to 1.7 million on an average gross wage of less than $50,000. So he goes on to say and I like the way he basically sums things up like this. So everyone knows that the U.S., like the rest of the world, is bankrupt. But who cares with stock markets and consumer sentiment at highs? Every new president or chairman of the Fed just hopes that nothing will happen on their watch. In the meantime, they will just print as much money as possible so they can pass the parcel to their successors. But at some point, the music will stop and someone will get stuck with the parcel. And this parcel includes total debt and liabilities, including derivatives, of $2 quadrillion. Anyone who gets landed with such a parcel will print money in the quadrillions. Or perhaps he will just issue cryptocurrency. Maybe the world at that point will value the 21 million bitcoins at $95 million each. 
This would take care of the $2 quadrillion debt. At that point, we will most likely also see elephants fly and many other miracles, which is his form of humor. So he goes on to say, the coming global financing requirement hardly rhymes with central banks reducing global liquidity by $2 trillion by the end of the 2018. That's what they claim they're doing. The coming collapse of stock and bond markets in 2018 will force central banks into a massive about-face, but at that point the added liquidity will have no effect. The world will then have reached a point when printing worthless fiat money will no longer have any effect, and why should it? If money printing could create real wealth, why would anyone ever work? And he goes on to go detail after detail. It's very interesting. So I encourage you to read Egon von Greyer's and uh, actually just kind of look him up. He usually comes out with a new article, something like that, about every week. And it's just very fascinating when you realize what kind of mess we're really in, but nobody knows it and nobody talks about it. So that was my little summary of that article, which I found, like I say, I find it very important that I try to educate people with that type of knowledge. But for the shorter term, we have a lot of interesting world events going on that have to do with the economies. I know that in Saudi Arabia, there's some kind of counter coup going on where they're actually freezing the bank accounts of thousands of wealthy people over in Saudi Arabia. I can't keep up with the whole Middle East thing, so I'm not going to act like I'm a expert and I'm not going to act like I have a lot of expert commentary. But I do want to say that if you look at what's going on in what's called the cryptocurrency space, that is what's called Bitcoin is the main one. And just in the last month or so, it has doubled in value. I remember that it had gone up to each Bitcoin at one point a month or so ago was worth 5000 it had a dip and it dropped down to 3500 And I heard from someone today, I haven't looked it all up. I, I work a lot. I don't have time to look everything up right when I want to. I heard that today it hit something like $7,500. So it's basically going to the moon. I'm finally going to get on board and I'll let you know how this goes when I start some kind of account to buy Bitcoin. I, I really should have jumped in six months ago, but you know I just didn't quite understand how to do it. Now I'm talking with people who are doing it, and they are making a lot of money. So I'm going to try to jump into the cryptocurrency space myself, and I'll be able to give you a little fill-in on how that works. But here's to make a long story short. They, I say they, the banks, the government, the what they call the powers that be, I don't believe they have yet figured out how to control the price of Bitcoin. And the reason I say that is that for the time being and over the last 30 or 40 years, they have figured out how to control the price of precious metals. And so when you see that gold is still under uh, under $1,300 an ounce and silver is still under $20 an ounce, but everything else is skyrocketing, that tells you that they have figured out, at least for now, how to manipulate and keep low the prices of precious metals. But in my opinion, they haven't yet figured out the Bitcoin problem. It's not a problem, except it's a problem for them. When everybody loses faith in paper money, which is what they call fiat money, and remember in the Bible, fiat lukes and all that, let there be, this is let there be money, fiat money, and that's all it is. Without our usage of it and without our faith in it, in other words, if you lose faith in paper money and I go to buy something from your hardware store and I hand you a $20 bill, you will say, sorry, I don't take those. And at some point that will happen. Or you might say, you know what? I think that fiat money's going worthless. So instead of you owing me $20 for that hammer, I'm going to charge you 40. And that's how it works when faith is lost in paper money. You can look, I've talked about this before, you can look at Venezuela. When you go to the store in Venezuela, if there's anything on the shelf, which there really isn't, you they end up weighing your currency, not counting it. Because faith in that currency has gone to zero, and it's almost worthless. My point is that they have managed to, for the last 30 or 40 years, 
keep the price of precious metals down. But when you look at a chart of Bitcoin, you'll see that that's what, that's the modern day equivalent of precious metals for a safe haven for people to put their money. As of right now, the total, what they call the market cap, like if you look at the market cap of a stock, you go to like Apple or uh, Amazon, the market cap, something like a trillion dollars. I don't know. You'd have to do the math, like $500 a share times, um, you know, two, 200 million shares outstanding, however the math works out. So the market cap of something like Amazon stock is a trillion dollars. Well, the market cap of the cryptocurrencies in total is right now under 200 billion. It might be 160 billion. If one day's trading of foreign currencies and stocks around the world totals up to a trillion or two trillion dollars a day, it's not hard to imagine that when the stuff hits the fan, as people say, when the big boys decide to go into the cryptocurrency space, which some of them probably have, I would guess that some of them have been told not to and that they're colluding to stay out of it. I would believe that those cryptos could go up by 10, 100 times in value because if you've only got $160 billion in there now and $16 trillion comes in, that's 100 to 1. And that could easily happen in the matter of a week or two. So you could easily see Bitcoin going from 7000 a share or, or per Bitcoin to 700000 per Bitcoin. Uh, there's nothing to stop that. It's sort of like looking at, look at a chart of Amazon stock or look at a chart of Apple stock. Who would have ever imagined that however it happened, those shares could be valued that high? Those companies are not that profitable. Maybe they will be if they monopolize the market, but they are not that profitable. So there's no telling how high these things can go. My feeling is that the precious metals are going to do the same thing, but for now they're able to manipulate the price and put a cap on it. But if you look at the cryptocurrency charts, that's what a precious metals chart should look like. And I say that's what a precious metals chart will look like at some point in the future. The other thing is a cryptocurrency is only an electronic entry. And even though it does have high security and high uh, safety, as far as an electronic thing goes, it's still dependent on the internet. So if we did have a point in time where the internet didn't work, you would not have your cryptocurrencies, but you would have your ounces of gold that you bought smartly, which is to ensure that your paper money, which is all of your stocks, all of your bonds, uh, you know, when you think about it, like I've said before, what do you really own when everything you own relies on another party to come through with their side of the bargain? Your stock account relies on your broker and the companies to pay it back. Your bond account relies on the government to pay you back. Your insurance policy relies on your insurance company to pay you back. Uh, your, if you're the bank, uh, your mortgage relies on your buyer to pay you back if you're the bank. Everybody has a counterparty to everything, and it's called counterparty risk. So what I'm saying is that an ounce of gold in your hand has no counterparty risk. You hold it and you own it. So that's my little word of warning. I hate to be depressing, but this is not a fun world right now. you got to be careful with your money. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA. I'll see you next time on Business Buzz. KKXX, Paradise, K280GL, Chico, and K283AR, Chico, Yuba City, Marysville. With home mortgage rates still near historic lows, now is a great time to buy or refinance. 
Michael Humes is your one-stop mortgage lender. Michael Humes and his knowledgeable staff are well-versed in a wide variety of loan types, including FHA, Fannie Mae, USDA, HomePath, and HARP. For a free evaluation of your mortgage needs, call him, 530-624-7942. That's 530-624-7942. Be sure to listen to Michael's Mortgage Market Update every Wednesday at 2.30 on Your Home Today. This is Michael Humes, Mortgage Specialist at Network Mortgage, located at 155 East 3rd Avenue. Then I'm a lost license, 230273. BRE license, 01250862. Employed by Network Mortgage, BRE license, 01840139. And a lost license, 358237. Equal housing opportunity. Come gather around people wherever you roam And admit that the waters around you have grown And accept it that soon you'll be drenched to the bone Oh, the times they are Hello, welcome back. 